Hello and welcome to Small Batches with me, Adam Hawkins. I'm your guide to software delivery excellency. In each episode, I share a small batch of a theory and practices along the path. Topics include DevOps, Lean, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. One of the best parts of this podcast is connecting with new people. I learned of Katie Anderson about a year ago when John Willis recommended her book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn. It was an instant purchase for me, and boy, I am so happy I did. I can tell you, this is a special book that cannot be copied or repeated because of the subject matter and because of Katie's story. I won't steal her thunder, you'll hear it directly from her in a minute. Katie has such a wonderful and positive energy. You can feel her passion for learning. She calls it a chain of learning, one link connecting to the next, finding new people, new experiences, and new opportunities to learn and grow. She didn't start with DevOps, Lean, or Agile, but she's found a home in our niche. We had a fun and wide-ranging conversation. First, though, it's time for the February book giveaway. This month, I'm giving away a free copy of John Willis's new book, Deming's Journey to Profound Knowledge. There will be another new giveaway next month. So follow me on LinkedIn for instructions on how to enter this month's giveaway and future giveaways. Listen through to the end for details on next month's giveaway. All right, now let's hear from Katie. So Katie, welcome to Small Batches. Thank you for making the time to talk to me today. I know I've mentioned you and your book uh, on the show before, but for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, can you introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background? Great. Well, thanks, Adam. I'm really, it's been looking forward to coming and talking with you here today. You know, we've both been following each other and interacting for a while. So having this conversation uh, is, is fantastic. So I, hi, everyone. I'm Katie Anderson. I am a leadership consultant, coach, speaker, and author of the now Shingo Award recipient book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, Lessons from Toyota Leader Isao Yoshino on a Lifetime of Continuous Learning. And I'm a learning enthusiast. And what lights me up is helping people solve important problems and more importantly, figure out how to help their people solve important problems. So that leadership side around lean and continuous improvement and DevOps and all of that, it's how do we shift our leadership behaviors to be more aligned with that impact that we want to make. So we can dive into all of that, but I'm excited to be here. Oh, and I'm also the host of the new podcast, Chain of Learning. Oh, yeah. And a uh, great episode. Your second to most recent episode was with Gene Spear or Gene Kim and Stephen yeah, Spear yeah. on uh, Ryan Learning Organization, like great stuff there. So yeah, definitely check out her, her podcast. So how you and I kind of got connected was John Willis was the glue. He was talking about your book and I was like, okay, what is this? I never heard. I never heard your name. I never heard mm -hmm. about uh, Yoshino. And uh, John was like, you need to read this book. I was like, okay, I read the book. The book is great. Introduce the book to us. Tell us why you wrote it and mm. what it is. And we'll talk some more about it. Yeah. So the, it's like the six degrees of John Willis. <laughs> it's not even less than that, but we could, we could go. So John, that's a shout out to you. So I, before we dive into like the book, I think a little backstory will help us get mm. there. So I had a first career in academia, but got introduced in around continuous improvement and lean practices, which, which all evolved from the Toyota production system in the Toyota way. And I 
had been living overseas in Australia for four years. And I moved back to the United States and took a job at the University Children's Hospital near where I live in California and got really passionate about these concepts of Kaizen and uh, continuous improvement. And like a love, I was like, this is what I was meant for. And so fast forward a decade, I had gone through more you know, evolution in my own learning and more senior roles and realizing, wow, I can't just be the only expert <laughs> a problem solver. I have to also coach and develop people. And decided to start my own consulting practice. This was 10 years ago so that I could work with other industries and leaders around the world and just have it have a different impact. And that was exciting. So I started my own consulting practice and gosh, less than a year into that, my husband who works in tech in the Bay Area found out that we had the opportunity to move to Japan for his job. And as a, you know, lean geek and to going to the source, going to Japan was like super exciting for me. And so we said yes. And so that was the beginning of a huge I guess, inflection point in my life and just where all the stars were aligned. I met uh, Isao Yoshino, a 40-year Toyota leader, six months right after we found out about this opportunity. Uh, and it was like half a year before we moved to Japan. He was at a conference, uh, a lean coaching conference, talking about his role as a manager. He was up uh, in his direct report, who was John Shook, the first non-Japanese employee of Toyota Motor Corporation. So they're on stage. I'm geeking out. I'm like in the back, you know, I'm like scribbling down everything they said. I'd already connected with John Chuck and he said, yeah, I'll help you about Japan. And then I met Mr. Yoshino and he gave me his card and said, well, when you move to Japan, look me up. I'll take you to Toyota City. Yes. <laughs> I was a super geek. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I'll spend the day with you. So I thought, oh, my gosh, like this is amazing. Like this is incredible. And I really so then fast forward, you know, six months later, we're in Japan. I, you know, we set time. Made my husband take the day off of work because I was like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We're going to go to Toyota. Like, wow. And like, we're going to talk with this Toyota leader. Ah. And so off we went on the Shinkansen down to Nagoya. It's like 90 minutes. It's amazing. A day that I thought was going to be a once in a lifetime thing turned into be one of the most pivotal days in my life. Uh, Mr. Yoshino and I just became, we just connected on so many different dimensions and we just started spending time together. I would come down to Nagoya and spend the day with him. He said it was okay for me to write about whatever I was learning from our conversations. So I had also started to write a blog. I have a unique opportunity. I'm a learner, but I also like to help people learn. So I was like, I'm going to start writing a blog, sharing what I'm learning by all these companies I'm going out to visit and make the connections I'm making. And now, you know, Mr. Yoshino. So that was like a year and a half that we lived in Japan. I was spending time with him, writing a blog, getting, you know, sharing all these. I, I was like, what's the secret to Toyota? And geeking out, going to all these different companies, Toyota suppliers, other Japanese companies, building what is now the foundation of my Japan study trips, taking executives like John himself or from around the world to go to Japan to have this immersive experience. But as that relates to the book, I, we didn't have an idea of writing a book. It was just this honestly collaborative, discussions of two people of different generations, different company cultures, different, you know, organizations, but coming together on this like real shared purpose on learning and, and connection. It was a few years after I moved back to the United States. He and I, Mr. Yoshino and I had continued to collaborate. I would go back to Japan and then he and I were actually doing, I brought him back to the U.S. a few times and we did some workshops together out in Europe as well. And he said to me, you know, people are really enjoying your blog posts. Maybe we should do a booklet, like create a booklet mm. from the blog posts. And I was like, yeah, a booklet. 
I think there's more than a booklet here. <laughs> uh, like, uh, like uh, to me, like a booklet's like, you know, like stapled together <laughs> little yeah, things. Anyway, this is a long story, but this is like the genesis of it. Anyway, so we like, yeah, let's do this. Decided that I would be the, the I'd be the author, you know, most likely. And we, we thought originally it'd be both of our shared stories. But as I was diving into like interviews and really extracting all this rich stories and piecing things together, I was like, wow, there's so much here not only from one person's journey of like truly learning how to be a leader and then leading to help create this like learning mindset. He was involved in some really important times in Toyota's history of how it as an organization and their executive team, their leaders were trying to create and shape the culture that it's Toyota so famous for now. And he played some really important roles in that. And so I was, I just, I realized I, I had to capture this history for all of us to have and learn from. And just became my personal mission for a few years to create that book. And we were in the final stages of it when the pandemic hit and I had this crisis, like, can I publish a book in the, in a, in this pandemic? Of course we thought it was just a few months, you know? (laughs) So, but I was kind of like, you decided, you know, this book needed to come out. It's not like being nine months pregnant. You're like, it has to, (laughs) there's no keeping it inside. And I'm so glad that I did because the stories and of like going of managing through challenges and failures and setbacks it really resonated with people i think no matter when but in particular during that that hard time that we were having in the in the depths of the of the pandemic so that's a longer story how it came to be it wasn't like something intentional that set out but it's something that like realized that it just had it had to be created and i and just grateful for the partnership and being able to apply actually all my academic research <laughs> skills. I was a qualitative researcher. So that, that, that really played into uh, creating the book as well. When I first got the book, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, I bought it purely on trust. John, like, yeah, yeah John said, like, this is a great book. book. <laughs> read this book. Okay. Instant buy, read the book. And then he mentioned, okay, there's this other guy, Namoto, read his book. Okay. Mm. Bought his book, read his book. Just, you know, blind faith. I have to say that this book is unlike anything else I've ever read Mm. in this whole space. I think it's partially because of the setup you mentioned, but also the way that the book is structured. You know, for the listener, we got to kind of level set the time period that we're talking about and the people that we're talking about. So Katie mentioned John Shook, massive figure uh, in history and like development of like lean in the U.S., Mm. You know, the first, was it, you mentioned English language or the first non-Japanese employee? Non-Japanese employee of Toyota Um, Motor Corporation. So they'd had some native or like, you know, Australian-Americans in like the sales department or whatnot, but in the actual Motor Corporation. Yeah, doing kind of the work that we think of, right? Yeah, the production work, making cars, (laughs) making cars. (laughs) That why John Shook is important here is he went to Numi in California, the whole Mm. Numi adventure to try to bring you know, the Toyota production system over to America, right? And sort of to yeah. prove that we got the same people, the same hardware, but all we're going to do is change the management process mm. and look at the look at the results. So that's like one thing for people to still level set on the people. Mm. The other one is John Shook is also the author of Managing to, to Learn, Learn, which yeah. is a great book on A3 thinking. I've covered that yes. on the podcast. We have a, and now I think he's also at the Lean Enterprise Institute, LEI. So he was the he had stepped in for a few years at LEI and now he's head of the Glean Global Network. So oh. yes. All right. So we yes. got John Shook and now Katie is mentioning Yoshino and we pull back sort of the the clock to placing this in mm. the history is he joined in nineteen sixty six, which is the year after 
they won the Deming Prize. And yes. probably about 10-ish years before they kind of really became the Toyota that we know, because in the mid-1960s, they weren't yeah. in the United States yet, at least really, maybe they had like a few cars, but it wasn't until the 70s and they kicked off. You know, you look at the history of Toyota, this early, the late 60s, early 70s, when they really start to figure mm. things out. Like they make that big bet on the Corolla, try to scale out this whole thing. And then from there, the rest is history. And your book captures all of that from somebody who was there, seeing, learning, participating. And I believe Yoshino also worked with like key figures that we may know, like Taichi Ono. And oh, he worked now, with no he worked with Nomoto. So his boss's boss was Nomoto. <laughs> and so he would go to Mr. Nomoto's lectures and he Mr. Yoshino was also working with the president and this, you know, the executive team to like make their annual speeches. John Shook reported to Mr. Yoshino in his book Managing to Learn. I don't know if you you realize this, but if you can go back to the uh, to the acknowledgments. He mentions that Mr. Yoshino was one of the two managers. The other one was actually the direct report to Mr. Yoshino, who really taught him the A3 thinking. So Mr. Yoshino is part of the manager character, Sanderson, in Managing to Learn. So it's just like truly this chain of learning that we, you know, I talked about. It's my podcast mm -hmm. title. It's like this is the, these are the interconnections. And he was there. And Yoshino was responsible of creating the training experience, the learning experience for all those American managers from Numi who went to Japan and he was tasked with figure out how to teach them our culture. And he's, so he's like, oh, that's no easy task, but uh, they did it. They did it. Well, and that doesn't even get to his, like the, more of his, what you cover in the book also, which is like the outside of work character, right? And, you know, you mentioned how, you know, you went abroad, you lived in Australia and then in Japan. I myself also left the country, lived abroad for a while. And Yoshino did the same thing, right? Hmm. You have this whole, I think this is just one, uh, why I personally I really connected with the stories in the book is you have Yoshino and he has, you know, he's doing his work at Toyota, right? But there's also this background thing for him of, I want to leave Japan. I want to live in the United States. How do I get there, right? And hmm. it's this whole kind of circuitous path of like the ups and downs and but it's just that commitment, that little like lifelong commitment to learning how to do different things, adapt yourself to continuous changes in, you know, what your environment is, the conditions of work, conditions in your life. And to sort of jump to the end of the book, and this is, I never heard any of the story before, but. Because <laughs> it was a failure. <laughs> well, right. But it's not even about a car. It's no. about a boat. Well, so right. Can you tell us about this boat? Yeah. Well, who here has heard of. <laughs> Toyota Motorsports, the water ski boat. Not many. Nothing. Well, now yeah. if you've read the book, you have, but that's yeah. outside the book. No. So this was a, you know, so we often associate Toyota with the concept of Kaizen and continuous improvement, which is more like the micro smaller improvements. Toyota also though has long-term visions and um, makes big bets on innovation. And so they have, they're willing to take risks to explore new Products. I mean, the Prius is a great example of something that was super successful on. The water ski boat is an example of uh, not success, but you have to be willing, if you want to create innovation, to be also willing to take, you know, have failures. They had this whole innovation department, and Mr. Yoshino 
I got assigned to um, Toyota Marine. I guess it was Toyota Marine Sports. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the Marine Department, and they were doing in Japan some motors and boats in Japan. And they decided, he was like, oh, I had this great idea. I've, he finally, as you said, you know, he had this whole lifelong dream, which we explore in the book of moving to the United States and finally did for four years and then moved back to Japan and was like, I need to get back to the US. So he had this dream. And then he had this idea that, wow, the Lexus engine, which is this high performing, you know, great engine could be great in a boat. And Americans love to water ski. They like those high, high end boats. And so he pitched this idea and it was, you know, it wasn't an easy pitch. So you can go into the book and read all, all about that. It was like multi years of trying to get this idea even approved as something. But finally they said, yeah, let's give this a go. And then they had Mr. Yoshino, they asked him to move out to the United States to help lead it. And, you know, it was like a 10 year from ideation to like failure <laughs> and a lot of ups and downs along the way. But it really speaks to uh, the importance, if, especially for big companies, if you want to stay ahead of the times, you also have to be willing to take big risks and to put ideas out there and to still not blame the person, individual, if there's a, if there's a, a failure on this idea, but it's, it's really uh, is a bigger issue. So ultimately, the, the motor, <laughs> the water ski boat was not a success. This was really hard for Mr. Yoshino. These are the darkest days. And actually, just from a writing standpoint, he always was transparent about talking about this, that he had this big career failure and he was, he, he would say the water ski boat and you have to learn from failures, but that was sort of the, the, the deepest he went into it. He didn't really think people wanted to hear about his failures and nor and on that deeper level and nor did he really want to get into it. But through the process of writing and, and actually years of me sort of asking different questions and starting to piece together the story, it, it started to come out. And one day he had this, just like this cloud lifted from him. Literally, he would look gray talking about mm. this situation. And also he's like, I see this in a different light. You, The way you have asked me questions and are framing this, I'm seeing it differently. So that was a real gift. Uh, but he, And one of the beautiful things about this and is about how Toyota's leadership responded to this failure. And so Mr. Cho, Fujio Cho, who's also a huge figure <laughs> in, uh, in Toyota's history, particularly in Toyota's history of like expanding to Kentucky. He was uh, president of the Kentucky plant for a while before he moved into being the president um, and chairman of the whole corporation. He's retired now. He said to Mr. Yoshino after that, he said, thank you for trying this. And, you know, you made mistakes. We made mistakes you know, but that's okay. You did your best and you tried. Uh, and, and so the, the company culture and the leadership culture of not blaming people when they're, when things fail or make mistakes is so critical if we want to really have not just cultures of continuous improvement, but culture of innovation and engagement as well. Yeah. And there's another part of that story. It's one of, one of the things I actually highlighted, uh, in the book, you know, you mentioned at the end, to know what he tells him but there's that other part in the beginning or like sort of in act three of clearly it's not whatever they're trying to do is not working mm. so they pull the end on cord so to speak and say hey we need help with this mm. so fujiocho comes to florida to assist right and there, there's this story you tell in the book and i have it highlighted here where he comes to talk to yoshino and yoshino is telling him all the things that are going well and fujiocho says there's no need for you to report the good news to me. Tell me the bad news because that's why I'm here. Yeah. And I 
internal, like for whatever reason that is like stuck with me because mm. you can always focus on the positive and things are going well, but we don't really need to talk about those. You know, if you really think about lean, the essence of it is problem solving. You know, obstacle is the way you have to deal with the problems. You have to overcome them. And if you're not going to, if you're going to signal help and then not actually talk about the problem, you're not really engaged with that level of the and on pole. You know, and the fact that Fujiocho just came there and just like cut through the noise and said, okay, what's the problem? How can I help? Mm. Just totally demonstrates that whole cultural aspect. And the other, I think one of my favorite quotes too, uh, and I'm pretty sure it's in the book, but it's not something else Fujiocho says, which is go and see, ask why, show respect. Like that encapsulates so much of the, of the attitude that's there in that story. And the other part about the boat story or the water ski boat story is that it's, that happens sort of at the tail end of his career. It's mm. not like the beginning. It's like, this is this sort of capstone thing that he's been working, working to, and you hope that it would go off, you know, successfully and be this amazing story. But it turns out this other way and it just requires, um, sort of a strength of character to deal with that level of, mm. For it not working out after, you know, investing and trying so hard to make these things happen for decades, right? Yes. And, and I think that I know that was really hard and continued to be hard for him for a long time. And one of the beauties about the book, and I think hearing for him to hear from, you know, Adam, you just said, and like hearing how impactful his transparency of sharing that experience, that really hard personal and professional experience is helping other people, it, it actually transforms that legacy of that failure into something that's actually this, this huge benefit that's much bigger than if Toyota could have made success with that water ski boat. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you know, I was you know, coming back to another little excerpt from the principles of product development flow and talking about how, you know, if you want to learn and you really want to learn, you have to experiment. Mm. And the optimal failure rate for learning is 50%. So you got to be failing half the time. But a lot of the stuff, and we would talk about our own experience in these things. We really, even though we know what's happening, we don't really talk about the failure so much, right? Especially when we fail spectacularly. I've told this story <laughs> in, on some back episodes of the podcast and the, the Salt Site Chronicles of how I sort of pushed for a rewrite of a product and thought, okay, this could happen like in like, you know, a quarter or so. I was off by like 400% and it taking a year. It was a total, oh, total no. mess, but it, it needed to happen. But it was for me like that first time where something that I had sort of like advocated for and sort of like, I think this, I think we should do this. I'm going to double down on this and turned out to be the right business decision, but completely wrong from like the technical implementation and like just didn't work out at all. But at the end of the day, it still needed to happen, but it just didn't go off as I had expected. And it yeah. caught, like, it was hard. It was a hard, it was the hardest technical <laughs> work I'd ever done. And I never want to do it again. But I don't want to hide that kind of failure. I think that's mm. where the real, you know, where the real, the learning is. And it, it, it could definitely be, you got to put yourself in a vulnerable position. But like now, especially in a leadership position, something I try to demonstrate is be okay saying, I don't know. Be okay saying, I messed up or I made a mistake or this didn't work but also adopt the posture that, I don't know, let's, let's try. Let's go and see if this works. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that can feel hard 
if you have this expectation that you as a leader have to be perfect or that in your mind what leadership is, but actually the more you can share that humanity side of ourselves, we can all share that humanity side of ourselves, actually more effective that we are in connecting with people and, and, and making, creating that cultural foundation that it is okay to make mistakes. Look, we all do. We all have failures and that's part of the process. I think sometimes it's so easy for people to see like the, the the end point of success, but we often don't see all the hard work that goes in it and all of the the micro failures even that lead that lead into it. So, you know, that's I I'm, I think it's really important for us to talk about those challenges and the the things we're even just struggling with, even if it's not a failure, but just like, ah, oh, God, I'm learning something new and this is hard. Yeah, I know. I remember when I started doing the podcast and I would try to I write the scripts and then record the episodes and then just like stutter and stumble and then like <laughs> get a retake, retake and edit and edit and edit. Nobody sees that because it gets edited out, right? But they don't see how long it takes to actually make some of these things. I know, totally. I think I had sent you a message about podcasting because, you know, my my podcast is an evolution. I've been doing, you know, like podcasting and videos and things for a long time, but I, I realized I wanted to have something more, you know, a little more polished, a little more thoughtful, more intentional. My word is intention, right? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, then I was finding like, I was like stressing how about, how do I create the structure and this is harder. And then I'm, you know, and I'm, but I'm now like at the time of this recording, I'm 10 episodes in and the flow is happening better. And so it, there's that natural, there is the, is there's the finding your way in that struggle that is inherent in the learning process. And I was, I was leading a workshop today and I, I talked about this concept that we, we get uncomfortable with that concept of the actual struggle. So if we see someone struggling, we want to jump in and save them, but we end up often overtaking like their learning process. Right. So you have to find like the right amount of struggle. We don't want people drowning, of course, like, <laughs> but like you got that awkwardness is, is part of the learning. And then to be kind to ourselves too, to know that like, of course, of course there's going to be struggle and not be perfect because that's, that's the learning is that's the sort of the, you know, the essence of it. So speaking about the essence, you know, you mentioned the Japan study trip, which is a whole nother area of conversation, which is probably one of the coolest things I've seen in this whole sort of lean Toyota and like this area is that you host a Japan study trip. I'll try to pitch it, explain it, and correct me if I'm wrong at all, but you do it with Yoshino and you go kind of to the source, you go to the actual place, like the factories and some of these key places and see what the work is actually like there with narration and commentary and like a real life person who's been there who can point and say this and that and kind of Mm. give you like a museum-esque introduction to some of this stuff. More than a museum though, you're like there for the real thing. It's not just curation. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's amazing. I mean, I I feel so fortunate that I had the opportunity to go live in Japan and I just took the bull by its horns and was like I'm going to maximize my learning out of this and I didn't know what was going to come of it. So, I just knew I wanted to make and this is just in my nature to go out mm-hmm. and explore and learn and make connections and so I was doing that for my own learning, but I had a glimmer of an idea as I I said thought to myself, you know, I know people there are organizations that lead these types of tours, but like let me see what I like what might evolve from from mm. this. And so the connections I've made and the partnerships I've created, we yes, Mr. Yoshino is part of the trip for a few days. We start off in the Nagoya, the greater um, Toyota City area, where, you know, Toyota is based about an hour outside of Nagoya and some of the uh, the Toyota factories or sorry, the Toyota suppliers mm-hmm. and, and really spend those first two and a half days like focused on sort of that genesis of the Toyota side. 
and then go explore other companies and other organizations and other cultural elements to really understand sort of the different inputs and evolution of these concepts. There's a company that's just a, one of sort of the, the anchor points on my on my trip where they consider happiness as their purpose and their chairman is considered the sensei, the teacher of a lot of Japanese executives, including at Toyota and Nissan and, and Panasonic and other big companies because of the focus on a long-term view mm-hmm. and a focus on people and happiness. And so, wow, how can we bring this into our companies? So it's so many different dimensions. It's much more on that people and that leadership side. Uh, and I, no matter how many times I go to the same company and I always, there's a, every trip's a little bit different. I learn something new and you see, cause things evolve and leaders say something different or they're encountering like six months later, a different challenge. And so it's just an incredible experience. And I feel so grateful to be able to get to know 18 amazing leaders from around the world and host them on a great week of not just learning, but culture, food, and fun. I know you got to come along sometime. <laughs> I would gonna... love to. I saw it and I was like, oh my God, this would be just a once in a lifetime yeah. kind of opportunity yeah. to really, really go go and see the actual places where some of the things happen. Yeah. You know, earlier before we started recording, you and I were talking about how we each have read The High Velocity Edge. And there's just, for me, like that book was a doorway into mm. a much broader world and understanding that I, I didn't know was there before. Mm. And it was just a thread that I kept pulling, you know, and I, I continue to, but I, and I just have to, you know, ask you like, what is it like to understand these ideas know some of the people, know some of the figures and the motivations and kind of the story. But what's it like when you're actually there? Oh, man. Like, well, I keep, <laughs> I went to Japan three times last year. So obviously, I'm an addict. I love, I love going back. I love the culture and the food. And like any experience, going to see, go or going to Gemba, Gemba being the Japanese word where the place something happens or the place the work happens is how we usually refer to it, is and, and people, I get this feedback from people who come my, on my trips too, that like the, you can read a lot and hear a lot uh, about it, but you can't really understand the nuances and what it looks like and all the inputs unless you are actually physically there. You can understand a lot, but it's the same thing as like we, like we say to leaders, like go to Gemba, go see, like you can get information and reports and that you can learn a lot from that. But there really is something about uh, meeting people in person and hearing their passion. And we go to an elementary school and see how these, some of these cultural aspects of regret for waste and respect for community uh, are taught at an, at an early age. It's just, it's very powerful and intangible. And then it challenges us to think, oh, okay, what are the things that we can bring back and incorporate into our own practices? Because we don't want to copy. It's not about copying. It's about being inspired by different principles, by different behaviors, and then thinking about, well, what what can we do that's either enhancing what we're already doing or maybe changing what we're doing to have the impact that we want? Yeah. One of my things I'm always thinking about is, you, know, you mentioned what it's like to go there, like go to the elementary school and see how these sort of cultural aspects impact different areas mm. of life, right? I'm always thinking about like, what was it about Japan, you know, post-World War II, 1950s, mm. 60s, and then, you know, into the 70s that for whatever reason, things just like click there in a way that they didn't click elsewhere for a long time. And people tried to copy without understanding, right? Deming tells us that uh, practice means nothing without theory. 
And there was a whole rationale and theory behind why, you know, sort of like lean took form. Like they didn't call it lean mm. then, they just called it the way that they, you know, the way they did things. Like, yeah, and lean was an external word that uh, Jim Womack's research team put on the Toyota production system and Japanese philosophies back in the 80s. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking of like Kanban pull-based work and all this stuff. And, you know, Jidoka, you go all the way back to, you know, Sekechi Toyota and the loom. Mm. And he's just like, I don't want my mom to waste yeah. time making this. I just want this machine to stop. And like these little ideas that just like percolate through mm. generations and you see them come up in different ways. It's just a real fascinating line mm. of, of thought. And it's like, what is it about? Was it, or what was it about those people, the way they thought, the way they collaborated? Was it empathy? Was it motive? Like, was it a problem? Was it motivation? Like, what is it that just allowed them to, I don't know, just create, to form this mindset and then perpetuate it over a generation? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously I'm, <laughs> I wasn't there, nor am I Japanese, but what Japanese leaders like Mr. Yoshino and others have told me is Japan experienced incredible levels of devastation in World War II. And uh, it was really just a transformation of like, wow, this <laughs> this imperial way we were doing things, the samurai culture, just like had, totally had to shift. But the, I mean, the cities were just wiped out, and there was they they needed to rebuild on so many different levels, and so there was a real focus on we have to innovate and we have to do more with less, not just do less, not that that, that side of lean, but we have to do more with less and we need to go fast and build. And so they were really receptive to Deming when he and others came over to Japan to help inspire and get, equip them with the the capabilities and knowledge to be able to do so, which, you know, hadn't happened in the U.S. or other Western countries. They were sort of scoffed at, you know, they, they, they were not well received, but they were like rich for learning because they had to rebuild. And so out of necessity came this focus right? I mean, it's incredible how much Japan rebuilt. If you think at the end of World War II in the mid-40s, and then they hosted the Olympics 15 years later, I think it was the 1960s. Oh, oh my God. I'm, I think yeah. it's 1960 Olympics. But in the early 60s, I'm pretty sure it's 1960, they hosted the Olympics. I mean, that's like incredible, like incredible turnaround. And the Shinkansen, the bullet train came out around like that same time. Like they were focused and driven. And some of that came from the old samurai culture and the, in the, like just a lot of focus and focus on improvement and iteration and just getting better and better and better and better. So it was the confluence of all these factors. We didn't have that same fire under our, you know, our feet of like innovate or you're going to just go away. That's it. Right. And you know, I revisited my review of Jeffrey Liker's book, the Toyota way, you know, it's the, mm. the second edition and uh, he has a footnote in there. I don't remember where it is in the book, but he's talking about the point of the footnote is to mention that uh, Sekechi Toyota was a Buddhist. And he makes the, like, doesn't really make the hard point, but sort of alludes to the fact that uh, in Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, there's a sort of like interconnectedness of yes. all things and that you naturally sort of kind of fall over in two systems thinking oh, they wouldn't call it that but you mm. see something more bigger the interconnectedness between things relationship that these things are not necessarily separate and one of the big things that deming took into those initial presentations was seeing all of japan as a system and mm. that all of these different companies and different people had a role to play and that if you were to coordinate 
to the aim and the benefit of the whole system that everyone in the country would benefit. Yeah. Well, and certainly Japan is a much more collective, collectively oriented society. I mean, it comes also back, stems back from the rice farming. Like you cannot farm rice well, that's, <laughs> as an individual. That was the part you of have the to, that was you have footnote. to collaborate. Like the water system goes together and then to harvest as well. I mean, and so when you go across to Japan outside the cities, there are rice fields everywhere. Like it's just every little square inch is used with, with rice fields. And so this collaborative nature of the society is really is so foundational. And at least here in the United States, we have a very individualism and in, drives all, you know, it's a difference of US and Canada as well. So it's, it's just that both have been successful, but in different ways. And there are some downsides to both ways of being and upsides as well. And so what I think what I, what I appreciate like about the Toyota way or the principles of the Toyota production system from a process side is that none of it is 100% like easy for any one culture. Like Toyota has done some things that are really counter to Japanese culture mm-hmm. um, in its, in its cult, company culture in the Toyota way. And then there's some things they leveraged from the, the you know, Japanese culture that are, are enablers. And so it actually it just challenges us all about how we can get better uh, rather than saying, oh, it's just it's just because it's a Jap- Japanese thing or it can't work here in my industry. It's actually they they all those principles inspire us to a different level, and some are easier than others depending on where we're from and where where we work and all of that. Yeah, though I think that the, to pull something from your book, one of the warp threads is the the mindset, like mm. the growth mindset, the learning mindset. That like, okay, what do we need to learn? What's the challenge? How can we overcome it? And adopting that mindset, it just leads you to ask questions and not take things for granted and just sort of see the world, see the world differently. Absolutely. So how, like your reference to the warp in the weft, that's like a weaving, actually the, you know, the looms on a thread, but is also, uh, also a metaphor for purpose and how we think about life, like the known are the warp threads as things that are constant and known and don't really break. And then the weft are the, are the discovered, the elements that we discover through life. And I think, I believe you can grow into a growth mindset, but people who have an inherently growth mindset, and I talked about this with actually with Carol Dweck, who came up with the whole mindset, growth mindset concept on um, episode three of my podcast, uh, how, how growth mindset is like the basis and foundation of continuous improvement culture. It's the same thing. It's like having this learning and growth mindset is the foundation for lean or agile or DevOps or uh, high performance or whatever, for anything. Yeah. Yeah. For, for anything for, and there's some reasons people do have more of a limited mindset. So how do we help them maybe grow and and see something different as well? But if you have that already, you are like a thousand times ahead of others because you're going to learn your way forward and manage through setbacks and failures and in a different way than seeing that as defining who you are. Yeah, you can see that whole mindset play out. I mean, you see it in your book with Yoshino, the whole, his whole story, right? You know, um, I read, have read Ryan Holiday's books and he has a ton of examples of this kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, I recently read uh, Adam Grant's new book, Hidden Potential, mm. also on mindset, telling all kinds of stories like that. And, you know, it's great if you already have it, but if you're a coach and you're working with people and you're trying to help them find that, that's where the real reward is as the mentor. It's like, how can you transition somebody out of this, I don't know, for want of a better term, sort of like this limited or fixed capacity into mm. opening this door into, hey, I can overcome this 
I can grow, I can change, that there's far more upside for me over here if I think like this. Spot on, Adam. And to me, that's why one of the last sort of case studies in the book is so beautiful. And actually, John shook when he was reading the book in an early in an early revision. He said, wow, this like this 10 months of Mr. Yoshino's life is like the epitome of the idealized Toyota manager and leader because he did just that. He created the conditions for people to move his like new team to move from, they were doing like just sort of rote office work. They'd never had other broader experiences. They were just sort of driving an hour or taking the train an hour into the city, an hour home every day. Just sort of like going through the motions, but not having a lot of inspiration or seeing a, a bigger future for themselves. And he decided, I am going to create a space to help people see something different. And he he started like writing these inspirational management messages and talking to his leadership team about or his, his people about this. And he found a way to get like, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, like, is it 22 pairs of tickets like to fly domestically or internationally so his people could have see the world in a way they couldn't or go to part of Japan that they could never have. And like, that was like, it's totally like, you know, on the far end of, of what, what it means to create the conditions for people to ha- see something different. But we can all do that, right? We can all we can all find ways to help people see more than just maybe the limited world that they had been exposed to about their potential. And at the end, you know, one of these women ended up leaving the in her twenties, le- leaving the company and deciding to go to university. You know, so, some people have said to me, "Well, isn't that actually like a bad?" thing that he did as a as a leader for the company that this worker left the company. I think that's the wrong <laughs> to me that's the wrong thing. It's like actually she's stepping into greater human potential and maybe she'll come back to Toyota or maybe not, but she's going to have greater impact in the world for seeing that she can get education and do something different. So it's again going back to your comment about having a, a bigger impact and seeing the interconnectedness and and maybe that's one of the limitations we have in in the West too. Because we're like, oh, why do we want to develop people? You know, think about Toyota's like four month long <laughs> orientation. Like, oh, if I spend all this time developing my staff, they're just going to leave. Because we're you know we do we move organizations more frequently, even if it's not every two to three years. They're not. It's usually not lifetime employment. But that's like a that's not myopic focused look at what human development means rather than like, oh, we're actually making things better for the the, the world in a totality. Mm-hmm. If we're all developing people and all doing that, then we're we're lifting the whole platform up, right? <laughs> rather than sub-optimizing it part of the system. Yeah. And I think this is one mistake or like, I don't know, misinterpretation I feel like people make when they think about lean and people think about, you know, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I think it just bears repeating is people see lean and they see it about like efficiency, oh, eliminate waste, do this faster, more whatever, blah, 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 all that, right? Okay, those, that's certainly a part of it, but that's not the reason why we tackle problems or try to improve things. Like in your book and in a lot of the books written by sort of like the so-called top management, right? They all focus on how it's about harnessing human potential and creativity to really drive improvement. and. That's not a efficiency thing. I think that's a real empathetic way to connect with people. And, you know, to that story you told about, you know, Yoshino and the, like this whole like learning program, like life development program. I don't remember what he called it, but it was just like aesthetics program, man, but a change yourself program. Change, yeah. Right. Yeah. If you commit to these things, like you can 
change yourself, thus then change your work and change your life and just reorientate. Like yeah. I have not told this story on the podcast before, but I, part of the reason why I ended up leaving the country is I'm just sitting around like one night and, you know, things aren't like going so well for me. And, and I think, um, I wonder what my life would be like if I left the country. Yeah. Hmm. What if? What if? Like this sounds hard or interesting, but like, okay, let's go for it. But to your point earlier about your story and that you hit these inflection points where then you can decide how you react, how you think, how you position them and your mindset. Like if you have that growth mindset, when these challenges happen, you interpret them entirely differently. And like when it comes to developing the capabilities of people, one thing I really try to focus on is helping them see those, see those things that happen as opportunities. And de- like, if they don't already have the growth mindset, show them what the growth mindset looks like and help them find it as like a way not to succeed in work, but to succeed in life. Yes. So as you're talking, I had forgotten that just a few months ago, somebody, I'm very infrequently on Twitter now or X, mm-hmm. but a woman in Japan had reached out to me saying, I read your book in Japanese and I worked for Mr. Yoshino during the, with the aesthetics program. Could you connect me with him? Oh, wow. And so I reconnected them in, in November. And now somehow she's gathered a whole group of those people who used to work for him together and they're getting together in March of wow. 2024. So I cannot wait to hear how that is. And he's so happy that all these people, like he changed the lives of so many people, which is, is just so powerful. Yeah. Well, I mean, that goes to show you what the power of, you know, human connection and empathy is, is that people remember like the best people that they knew in mm. work or in life. And however it is that it happens, if it's through like a manager relationship, coworker relationship, friendship, whatever, but you remember the people who had an impact on you and why they did. It just shows that if you put your effort into developing people, you can you know, it's not to sound all like roses and unicorns, but you can change the world over the long time. Like you can change your, your like your local group, like your friends, your family, like your little, little garden, your little circle of control. If you can focus on there, you really can change things, but you have to commit to it. You have to follow through. Yep. I don't know if you knew that the kanji, the, the symbols that make up the written character for Kaizen or continuous improvement. Actually, the, there, are two, there are two symbols, but the sub-symbols in the one that means change actually comes from meaning it's self and whip. It's about mm. having the self-discipline to create change for the good. So it starts actually with yourself. So we usually think of Kaizen as all about process, but actually it's like the self-discipline to make change for the good. You know, one of my mo- the the thing I come up with on most on like any SEO is a video I made called "The Real Meaning of Kaizen," where I talk about that. So Google that; <laughs> you'll come up with it. Uh, which I talk I talk about the the samples like wow, like self discipline to make change for the good. So it all comes back to us, and we we lose all that in our translation. Even the you know the concept of respect for people actually means holding precious what it means to be human. I mean. That's more powerful than just respect for people, holding precious what it means to be human. And so we, we get stuck on all the process side, but there's like this real deep humanity um, <laughs> that comes down to it. And that is embodied by Mr. Yoshino's answer to my persistent question when I first moved to Japan and was spending mm-hmm. time with him. of like, come on, Mr. Yoshino. I didn't say it. Come on. I'm like, I just like, no, what? <laughs> 
I was asking with curiosity. Right. <laughs> but I was like, no, what is the secret to Toyota? Like, tell me behind the scenes. And he kept saying, no, 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 there's no secret. Like, we're just people, we're doing things. And I'm like, no, there's something different. There's something different. And it was probably a, a few few times into me spent going, you know, jumping on that bullet train and going down there. And he said, you know, maybe the only secret to Toyota is its attitude towards learning. And he wanted to say, we, we don't even take it for granted. Like, we don't even notice. We take it for granted. It's just mm-hmm. part of who we are. But if you think about that attitude towards learning goes, Adam, it goes to everything we've been talking about here. It's, it is respect for people. It's about harnessing the, the potential of all of our minds and our, our spirits. You know, it goes back to the wiring, the winning organization. It's a, that's the whole, we wire the winning organization through the interconnectedness of our minds and our potential and our humanity. So I don't get woo-woo either, but we, we get so focused on we want the results and the outcomes, which of course, we, yeah. that's why businesses exist. <laughs> but the way to get there is through people and through learning. And so we have it backwards here in the US or in Western society. We often just focus on that output mainly, but we need to f- focus on the inputs, which is people and learning. And it's through that that we get to the outputs. I mean, yeah. Toyota says we, we make people so that we can make cars or we make people while we make cars. It's like the enabler. So let's focus on the input. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, I don't share this often, but in the, in the book, Tree Ring Management, that the chairman of the company I mentioned that I mm-hmm. go to, he, he says, profit is excrement. It oh, is God. the natural. Yeah, it's actually a quote from the book. Yeah. Uh, it's the natural byproduct of a healthy functioning company. If you focus on the health yeah. of your people and whether you're putting into the company profit and all those other business results that you need are going to happen. But if you, if excrement is your goal, then excrement you shall get. And so. There's a lot of great quotes around sort of the framing of profit, you know, and this all comes back to, you know, somebody's mindset on like why business, why do certain things, mm. but you know, this, um, you know, profit is a positive side effect of the value you produce. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's going to come, but it's the natural byproduct of doing good stuff. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned wiring the ring winning organization and Kaizen. It just got me thinking about something else, which is so one thing when I started working with some new people and, you know, they were asking, like, oh, who are you? What are you about? Right. What do you care about? And I said, well, the only thing I care about is improvement. And, you know, you're talking about Kaizen. I'm just thinking about that. And you know, on your last podcast with Gene and Steve, you ended yours with a question to them. So I want to end ours with the same question to you. Mm. Focus is on Kaizen, right? So your question to them was, what is one thing you've had to change or adjust in yourself as leaders to effectively wire the winning organization or team? Mm. And on, when you did your episode, you said uh, having to like scale back your desire to solve problems, like being overly, overly, overly curious. So Question for you is what's something else you've had to adopt for oh, yourself? Ooh, something else. So yeah, I always talk about I had to break the telling habit because, you know, I love to solve problems and jump in with my ideas. So it's not about us being the expert all the time mm-hmm. um, and having the answer. Yeah, you know, I think as there's the, the corollary to that is slowing down and really being present. Um, you know, I... I <laughs> I'm a fast-paced mover, and uh, I can get so focused on the doing and forget sometimes the being. I actually had another podcast about this. You know, I of course you you do podcasts and you write about the things that are your own challenges. So of of course, and I, uh, 
you know, and so what has been really tremendously helpful for me, in addition to really being able to ask more questions than jumping in with all my ideas and great, they're great ideas, but (laughs) not necessarily helpful in the moment, uh, is slowing down and slowing down to both listen or on many, many dimensions, slowing down to listen to like, if I ask a question, count to 10, give space for someone to think and to respond. Slowing down so I'm less reactive because I can get like overwhelmed and frenetic. And then I start just like, you know, mm. getting over. It's like when I can slow down, I actually am much more, I'm better on all so many different levels. And then slowing down to really connect with who do I want to be in this moment? Not like, and of course, there's all the doing, but sometimes it's easy to get focused on all the doing and the achievements and the things you need your to do list. But like, am I making the right choices in my behaviors? And in the trade-offs on, in, in time um, and how I'm reacting to situations. So that was a bit of a slowing down, mm. slowing down. Yeah, stillness is the key, as they say. Not right? all, yeah, but not always. It's good to be like, <laughs> I need to balance. It's like the yin and yang, right? Like I have a lot of energy, which is a positive side of me. But that energy can also have negative impact if I'm not aware of balancing it with the pause, with the slowing down as well. Yeah. So I relate to that. You know, I'll give you my answer to this question. Oh, yeah. So please, Adam, what (laughs) is the one thing that you or one thing you have had to change in yourself or adjust to be a more impactful leader? It's um, adopting scientific thinking and slowing down to deeply engage in the problem solving. You know, Mm. earlier in 20, I think it was in end of 22 beginning of 2023 i did probably the hardest thing i had to do in a long time which was lead an a3 with a new team member and it mm. was extremely challenging but it was the most rewarding thing i had done in a long time just because of what we were able to accomplish there but it would not happen without creating the space so like as a leader clearing the board to make the space for yeah. the people to engage in the problem solving but then for me to also step back and not engage in the problem solving but only engage in the questioning around yeah, how the they process. were solving, solving <laughs> yeah. the problem so that i've adopted that and sort of continue to fold into my own daily work and it's made a huge a huge difference mm. i just love that question as it gets to each person's own little attempts at kaizen and them like kaizen in themselves absolutely we all have you know <laughs> growth opportunities getting back to that growth that growth mindset to talking about A3s and the leader's role, you know, there's, I have a, a show, actually, John Shook's first A3 with the symbol about Mr. Yoshina's Hanko or his signature about how at Toyota, and this is the intended purpose, which you're demonstrating here, which is the leader's role is to oversee the thinking process, not do the thinking for mm-hmm. that problem itself. You have to do thinking in other ways. And so but that's a real shift for us, right? And so how do we get that to be part of just the inherent process? And you have to build in that lead time for problem solving. Otherwise we, you know, they get into the urgency. So good for you. Yeah. And it goes to show you too, I mean, how easy it is for us to build the wrong muscle when it comes to the problem solving. I mean, they talk about Mm. in Wyoming organization is like thinking fast, thinking slow, like system one versus system two. How easy it is we train ourselves to just react to that quick learned pattern matching instead of engaging in the deep problem solving. Yeah. And we we have a lot of great ideas and some of them might be good, but have we even just really <laughs> figured out what problem we're trying to solve? Yeah. Uh, so well, we, can go, on, we can go, we can die. There's like at days on talking about problem solving Indeed. another time. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Katie, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. I want to leave you with the floor is yours. Where, 
what do you want the listeners to know? Where can they find you? Well, great. Well, first and foremost, uh, go to my website. You can subscribe to my newsletter. My website is kbjanderson.com. Uh, I have my newsletter there. My new podcast is Chain of Learning. So you can find it either on my website or chainoflearning.com. And that's on all the, you know, the regular um, shows. Of course, we've been talking about the book Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn. You know, go to that URL, learning to lead, leading to learn.com or, or Amazon or your favorite place and, and connect with me on LinkedIn. That's my main social media channel there. Um, I put all, I, I post almost daily, not all the time. I do take breaks, but, you know, a lot of content out there. Uh, so I genuinely love to connect and share ideas with people. And so please reach out. I'd love to hear from all of you uh, listeners about what resonated with you from this conversation between Adam and me and any questions you might have. So reach out on LinkedIn or on the website and uh, excited to continue the conversation and grow our chain of learning together. All right. That's all for this batch. We could have talked for much longer, but you know, got to control the batch size. Two things before wrapping up. First, the March giveaway will feature a signed copy of Katie's book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn. If you are a Toyota geek like I am, then believe me, you want this book. We're not going to get another Mr. Yoshino anytime soon. The giveaway will only be open to U.S. mailing addresses. So thank you so much, Katie, for donating a signed copy. Follow me on LinkedIn for details on the next giveaway. Second, I need your support to keep this podcast viable. I've set up a Patreon to support this podcast and its cousin, Software Kaizen. Your support ensures I can continue producing small badges episodes just like this one and long-form written content on Software Kaizen. So go to smallbadges.fm slash 102 for links to my Patreon and all of Katie's links. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping.